You're listening to Senior Times Podcasts. Thanks to our sponsors, Expressway Travel Department and Doro Phones, for making this podcast possible. Mike Murphy here, welcoming you to the first Senior Times series of podcasts. My guest today on our Senior Times podcast, and I'm delighted to welcome her to this, is a great friend of mine and has been for many, many years, actor, journalist, broadcaster, writer, Deirdre Purcell. You've had a very varied career, like I was describing the things you've done. And where were you brought up? Dublin. Dublin, you were, weren't you? But I went to school in Mayo. Whereabouts in Mayo? Curtin Rabbey and Cross Malina. Why? Why did you? Got a scholarship. It was that in the era when there were no, um, there was no free secondary education. Right. So people of my age, leaving primary school, did a raft of these exams for convents. Because and you got it. And mm. what, what were your parents? Were they well-to-do, middle class? Um, middle class, i Middle class, say. okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. my father was a civil service and my mother didn't work. And, and siblings? One. One. Brother, sister? Brother. Brother. You moved on to becoming an actor. Yeah. How did that... And, and you were in the Abbey Theatre. Yeah. And you played in a well, couple I went of... Into pre- the, I went into the Abbey first, you know, day one. What age? I think I was 19. I was coming in from Aer Lingus. How do you mean you were coming in from Aer Lingus? Aer Lingus. You mean you're from the airport? Or you're, no. Or, I, was or you, I was on the bus was, in from Aer Lingus. I was working in Aer Lingus. You were yeah. doing what? I started in the civil servants, yeah. writing addresses on envelopes. I did that for six months and it nearly drove So that's how you started your writing career. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then you decided, I want something a bit better than this. Well, I got, um, the same day I got two letters in the post. One was uh, that I got a job in Aer Lingus and the other one was that I got the Junior X. I don't know whether you remember. Yeah, the, the Junior, junior X. X, yeah, and the, the exam. The Junior civil X service. was another civil service thing, but it was kind of several layers above what I was doing. Okay. My father was absolutely delighted, you know. You got the Junior X, you know. The, you, Good, the, steady, pensionable steady, job. Steady, pensionable job. It was a lifelong job and everything. But Aer Lingus, well, first of all, it paid a pound a week more. What were you to be doing in Aer Lingus? What kind of a job? I was working... Wasn't as a hostess? no. No. John Banville and I worked together in Aer Lingus. Now, he does actually now acknowledge that he worked in Aer Lingus. <laughs> um, we worked in a place called Central Reservations. It, 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 there were no computers. It was all done by hand, where in the O'Connell Street booking office, you'd go in, you'd book your, your flight, and it was written on a card, like Bristol or Cardiff or Rome or whatever it was. And the card came down a conveyor belt, eight or nine compartments in the conveyor belt with stops. One stop would be Bristol, Cardiff, London, you know, etc. And our job was to take the cards and write the booking into a big, big ledger. I loved Aer Lingus. I loved it. It was a start-up, you know, and I love start-ups. I love getting stuck yeah. into it. We were going to be the best airline in the world. You, you liked acting? You went to the I, well, I joined When I was in Aer Lingus, I joined the Aer Lingus Musical and Dramatic Society. Ah, that was the start. That was yeah, the start. Was the and start. Uh, my colleague wanted to get into the Abbey School and his best scenes, he thought, were the scenes he had done with me in plays. Yeah. So I went along for his audition. I didn't want to be an actress. Oh, really? But I went for his audition. But the object of acting, as you probably know, is to change the expression in the other person's eyes. So 
wasn't my audition. I didn't care, but I wanted to help him. So I, act my, I obviously acted my socks off because yeah. I got a call that night from Ernest Blythe asking me to join the company. Did he really? Mm. From Ernest Blythe from himself? From Ernest Blythe, yes. From God above. Yeah. I mean, he was the man, wasn't he? He was, yeah. And then you joined, and uh, aren't I right that you played opposite at one stage um, uh, Donald McCann? My first show. Was it really? Uh, I, I joined it on a Wednesday, and I had to open on the Monday <sighs> as uh, the character of Christine in Drama Tinish. The Leonard Robinson. Yeah, and Donald was the... Lead. Donald was a nice guy. He was in school. Oh, that was a fantastic cast. I mean, like yeah. it was Donald, uh, Des Cave, uh, Philip O'Flynn, Angela Newman, Aidan O'Kelly. I yeah. mean, it was just. Fantastic. It was the company, the Abbey the company. company at that time, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. So, did you become a member of the Abbey Company? Yeah, straight off. For for how long? Nearly three years. And that was that was getting a wage at the end of every week. Oh, wasn't it didn't it? matter. You had to, on a Friday. Even if you were playing a tiny part. Yeah, you go down. It was a wage. And you go down, it's also more than I was getting in Aer Lingus. Was it? So um, you go down to the stage door every Friday and there was a kind of a, a, a clickboard and the cast was up for the next day. And like, you just looked, and if, if you weren't on the cast, you, you're, you, you still got you paid. Still got paid, yeah. How long were you there? Th- nearly three years. Three years, okay. What was the best part you had? I never did a big lead. Did you not? No. Um, and then I kind of got bored and... Tomás McCona asked me would I be interested in running the sound desk. They were getting in a huge new electronic sound desk and he thought he detected that I might be able oh to do goodness, that. Yeah. So I did. You got married. You No, you met American guy. He was an actor, was he? I met him uh, when I went to America because one night uh, a priest came backstage in the Abbey. Long day's journey into night. And um, he asked me would I be interested in going to Loyola University in Chicago to become the first European theatre artist of his new theatre department. And you said no. I said no. <laughs> that wouldn't I be slightly. I, I really <laughs> love doing the laundry for the, <laughs> for the other actors. Yeah. <laughs> no, of course I did. Of course I did. How long were you there? Five years. Were you really? Mm. And that's where you met. Yeah. Met him on the first day. Rob Weckler. Yeah. He became your husband. Yeah. And did did you get married in America or where? No, 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 got married here. But I mean, he day one, I was crossing the campus, and uh, it was 1968, which is an incredible time in Chicago. Mm. Um, but I was crossing the campus, and this apparition came towards me. His tall had a full length gabardine, beige, moccasins, and hair down to here. <sighs> And every, as he walked towards me, everything flapped. The coat flapped. And the hair flapped. The hair, the moccasins, everything. Yeah. And he said, are you the Irish actress? And I said, uh, yeah, yeah, that's me. And he said, I want to buy you a cup of coffee. So I, I thought, oh my, aren't they lovely in America, really? Aren't they just lovely? <laughs> so he, he was only 19. I was 23. So I thought I was terribly sophisticated. I was European and all that, you know. Yeah. So over that cup of coffee, he told me he was going to marry me. And I, I, I was kind of... Sure yeah, you are. Sure yeah. you are, yeah, but he did. He did? How long after? Yeah. Well, yeah. So the two of you were together for your yeah. time in America. Yeah, for the and year, then, yeah. And then um, Adrian was born, my son Adrian, in 1973. That was five years later. Five years later. Yeah. Uh, then we came back to Ireland. RTE 
was the only job I could get when I got back from America. I'm qualified for nothing. I have no degrees. I have no letters after my name. No training on anything. Bit like myself. Bit like yourself. Correct. Go ahead. We did okay, didn't we? Did okay. But um, I auditioned. There was a public competition for radio announcer, and we were trained in broadcasting. You know, I got, I got the audition. I loved it from day one. Even though the original job, I mean, my colleague Catherine Hogan, who you know, we, we started together, and Marion Finucane started with us that day as well. And uh, Catherine actually created a 2,500 patchwork quilt, hand-sewn during our shifts. Then I, got, I get bored quite easily, so I got bored with announcing because they, they do more now than we did. It was just the time now is 8 o'clock or whatever. Yeah. But we were, we were trained for when the thing broke down. That's what we're trained for, to play music and take over and fill. But it rarely broke down. So you're just yeah. sitting there, you know. Bored. And, uh, bored and listening to Kaylee music or something. Yeah. So she did that. I could think of nothing that I wanted to do. And you couldn't read because if you read, you'd get into it and you'd miss something. You'd miss, you had to listen all the time. Yeah. Then I was recruited sort of by Mike Burns to go, to go and read the news. And those days as well, it was just reading the news. There were no interviews or nothing and everything. And I did that for about three years. Then I realised that once you've read a perfect nine o'clock news or a perfect six one news, there's nothing else to do except read another perfect. <laughs> no, and there's no creativity. It's really in it at boring. All. Yeah, it was at that time. Yeah. So then I became a journalist within RTE, and then there was a big hoo ha about having two people on the news. So my companion became Don Coburn, who is uh, was as pernickety as I am about. Per- announcements and about, you know, the pronunciations and everything. He was a brilliant newsreader, right? He was, yeah. And then um, they were going back again to do single newsreaders. And who's going to get the big gig? And the day that I was brought into an office and told I got the gig, I'd also had a phone call from Vincent Brown asking me to join the Sunday Tribune. This was when the Sunday Tribune was starting, was it? Okay. Vincent will deny this to the day he dies. But he didn't know whether I could write or not. I didn't know whether I could write or not. I'd never written anything. The, the broadcasting was just scripts, very short 30-second scripts. So I, 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 I didn't know how to be a journalist, really. And I know what, why he hired me. There was a gap in his roster of new people that he was bringing in. Yeah. But like that first day um. I went into the Tribune, I was sitting around a table with people like Fintan O'Toole, Mary Holland, Emily O'Reilly, all kinds of incredibly erudite people, Olivia O'Leary, people that are like, what am I doing here? But then I realised something very interesting by the end of the first meeting. I was was always very upset that I'd never had a university education, had no degrees, and these were all like dripping. Ultra-educated. Yes, yeah. And I felt very inadequate. And then I realised... I can think too. Maybe I can make a go of this. He asked me. It's not my fault that I'm here. And uh, I, I moved on from and there. And then suddenly you were getting a page and a half <laughs> for yourself over, over and above all the rest yeah. of them. Anyway, but Rob just could not settle here. He 
called it the Celtic gloom. He couldn't bear the weather. He couldn't yeah, bear well, everybody yeah. being upset and giving out and yeah. all of that. He just couldn't. And he did get some work here. He, he did the lead in Noel Pearson's Cabaret and he did uh, the Jacques Brel. Yeah, no, Jacques Brel was Pearson alive and did. well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but it just didn't work out for us. And you broke up? Yeah. And how many children had you? The... I had just had the second child. So okay. Yeah. And so he went back to the States. Was it amicable or was it a fraud? Uh, no. No, no, was it not? No, yeah, it a pity, definitely. okay. Do you, do you ever at any stage regret that you gave up journalism to become a writer? I don't regret it, but I miss it. Do I you? really and truly miss it. I love trying to get to the essence of people mm. and giving my own take on it without talking about myself. I developed that skill, I think, where I would, could write about you or I could write about anybody, really. Somebody selling apples in mm. Moore Street. But for some reason, I got to the stage where people trusted me and they told me things that they hadn't told anybody before. Now, I never betrayed anything that would be upsetting to them or anything like that. But I just it was, it was a great sense of satisfaction to know that I'd, I'd got that person. Did you did you leave voluntarily? What what happened? Was Vincent Brown the editor of the Sunday Tribune at yeah, the time? He was, yeah. and what and the Sunday Tribune closed down. But I mean, your articles were a page and a half long, weren't they? they were I mean, long, yeah. they were huge yeah. interviews. They were really big profiles of individuals. Yeah. Um, and what did you say? Thanks very much. I'm off. I'm going to be a real writer. Or did they say thanks very well, much? This, this you're was, off. Which no, was no, no, no. This was the, when I got the offer. That was it. So. Okay, so you said thanks and very much. The, I got the ten grand or whatever. Or whatever, it was, yeah. yeah. Uh, you gave it up. Okay, yeah. what was it like working in a, a, a newspaper like that? You would do your article, you'd meet the person, send in the article, and then would somebody would? I mean, Vincent, a brilliant journalist, and actually a man I'm very fond of. Did, but he could be acerbic and tough, and he had a reputation for being a real tough cookie to work for. Yeah, he was. Yeah, <laughs> he was. He was a conundrum, he really was, is, mm. because he is that very rare kind of creature. First of all, he's brilliant, he's a genius, you know, he really mm. and truly is. He's acerbic, yes. He's very, very difficult, yes. But he hasn't a cynical bone in his body. He's sceptical, which is a different thing. Yeah. And that's very unusual for a journalist. Scepticism usually turns to cynicism in journalism. And I certainly have never been cynical. So I think I saw it in him. Like, no matter how much he was going out or whatever he was doing, it was always with a view to getting something good or to do something good. You know, he, like, he'd be blushing now, but he, he was definitely the most inspirational man I ever met. Was he really? Yeah. Of the interviews that you did, can you remember any one that really stood out that you got a different view of the person completely having spoken to well, him. Well, actually, yes. Um, and this is where the cynicism and the scepticism comes in. Geoffrey Archer was a person of great fame, mm -hmm. lots of books, but for some reason journalists kind of were very, very... Iffy about him. Oh, yeah. yeah. There was a sort yeah. of a... Yeah, there well, was, was a, a yeah. kind of a thing. You, sort of, you said, this guy's a bit of a chancer or yes, something. Or which was, yeah. And again, I would have formed an opinion without meeting him. Exactly. Somewhat similar to what you've just expressed. Yeah, that's one thing that I never did. I did no research on a person. 
Did you not? No. Well, if it was a, if it was a person who'd written a book, I'd read, yeah. I'd read the book. But I didn't do any research because then I would go in with fixed ideas. Okay. So I never went in with fixed ideas. And it was with him because people were saying, why are you doing Geoffrey Archer, you know? But Geoffrey Archer now came in, flounced in really into a restaurant and we had lunch. And it was around the time of the fragrant Mary and all of his that wife. stuff, his yeah. wife. And he sat down and had lunch and... I can't even remember how I conducted the interview, but I just started to talk to him and ask him about himself and how he feels. And is this stuff upsetting him and, you know, all of that kind of thing, without being in any way judgmental or anything. Yeah, I just he was wanted in trouble at the time, wasn't he? He was no, in terrible trouble. Yeah. But he, to show what it's like to be that kind of an interviewer, he came in a limousine and he had the limousine parked outside, I think it was Kite's Chinese restaurant in Donnybrook and the engine was running the whole time and the guy was waiting for him and he told the guy I'd be half an hour two hours later we were still talking now I assume that there were there are quite a number of people like that who don't get to reveal their real selves and I'm not being blown my own trumpet which is that is the cardinal sin for an Irish Catholic convent girl but um, I think I I had that ability because I was interested yeah. I was genuinely yeah. interested in finding out I didn't ask questions for the sake of getting great copy yeah. I was genuine and I'd rouse with Vincent Vincent told me I was lazy that I only did one interview a week I should be doing at least three and I had her out with him and I said, you don't know how I do this. You have no idea. Yeah. And what I did was I'd speak to somebody for up to four hours. There's a few famous four-hour ones. And I'd have four hours on tapes. I would transcribe every word. Because when you are speaking to somebody, when you're interviewing, the object is to get them, to get them talking. But you don't remember what they said. Mm. And it's only when you're transcribing it that the essence of the person comes out, the tone of voice. You remember the little fiddly things that they did because they, they were doing that when they said it, that kind of stuff. That's what makes good interviews, I think. Mm. If you have a free travel card, did you know that you can use it on expressway coach services all across Ireland? Travel from Cork City to Sligo Town, catch a flight from Dublin Airport or visit the home of the Titanic. Adventure awaits. And with reclining leather seats and free Wi-Fi, getting there is half the fun. Where will you go? Hop on board or visit expressway.ie. Being future ready? It's a powerful feeling. Like putting your out-of-office on for your holidays. Start time now, end time two whole glorious weeks from now. Happy days. Feel powerful about your future. Talk to a financial broker about a pension powered by Zurich or visit zurich.ie. Zurich Life Assurance PLC is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. You mentioned the plays there, Jacques Brel and so on, which just reminded me, our mutual friend Gay Byrne was in one of those. He was in The Fantastics. Was he in The Fantastics, was he? And you co-wrote 
uh, ghost wrote or wrote his biography, autobiography, uh, really. Yes, you call it, it an autobiography. It was an autobiography, yeah, but yeah. you wrote it, isn't that right? Yeah. How, tell me about that, because Gay was, as you know, a very close friend of mine and yeah, of yours. Yeah. How did that work out? Was he forthcoming? Was he willing to have things written down? I mean, I know there wasn't a hidden life, so to speak, so of, of Gay's. Know that, I yeah. do know that, absolutely I do. But how forthcoming was he when you well, were Well, he had it? written his autobiography himself mm-hmm. first, to whom it concerns, I think. Yes. And for the first six months, all I was getting was the same stuff, because I'd obviously read it. Yeah. And he was also getting impatient with me. I, I could see it. He'd be looking at his watch or fiddling or whatever. Eventually, after the six months, because I'd fought Vincent Brown to do this. There was a, a lot at stake for me here. Um, Vincent Brown did not want me to do this. Why? Because it would take me away taking from... Taking your time, yeah, yeah. okay, taking your time, yeah. But I wanted to prove to myself that I could do a long project because I thought I was a very impatient person and that I'd never finish a long project. So this was a good way of, you know, testing okay. myself. And how long did it turn two out to years. be? Did it turn out to be yeah. two years? Okay, but you gradually f- yeah, melted them. No, no, I didn't. Um, I started to get to myself, why am I doing this and fighting with Vincent Brown? And, you know, so... I confessed to Senior Times that I had a large gin and tonic. And I went in one day to, to interview him. And I said to him, um, before we start, Gay, can I just say something to you about this process? And he said, yes, don't. And I go, um, you're treating me like as if I'm a nuisance. Am I, don't? <laughs> yeah, I know that voice. And I said, uh, well, actually, you are. You know, we're not getting very far because it's, we're just having the same stuff that's in your own book and we need to go a little bit more. And I don't mind if you want to get somebody else. I really and truly don't. Oh, no, you know, and blah, blah. From then on, he was pussycat. Was he? He was terrific. Yeah. Now, I didn't get much more. I interviewed everybody he had ever met, practically. Um, all his family, friends. He's, he's very, very loyal to his friends. He really was. Yeah, he always was, yeah. It, it, it ended up the biggest hardback sale ever. Yeah, in it was, big, it was, it was a big, big success, yeah. really, it was. Yeah. Wasn't that when Andy O'Mahony on The Late Late Show oh. asked you... <laughs> yes. He asked you, did you want to sleep with him? No, was that the question? No, it was much worse than that. Oh, what did he say? He said, again, I, don't prob- I probably shouldn't be saying this, but anyway, Andy, I think, wanted to take over The Late Late Show. I think he did. Yeah. It's only my own opinion. And, of course, Gay stood, stood aside for that launch of that book. Oh, so Andy stepped in... Just to do the interview with me. So, um, it's the first and only time in my life that I lost my voice. I had no voice. So I was croaking like Mm. a frog. But anyway, Andy was kind of asking me all the usual questions and what did I think of gay? And I was doing all the usual answers. And out of the blue... But I could see him working up to it. Sometimes you can see that. You know, he was working up to something and I thought, God, he knows something about me that I don't know why he knows. And uh, suddenly he says, why didn't you sleep with Gayburn? And quick as a flash, for some reason I, I didn't lose my nerve. I said, because he never asked me. Did you? Yeah, that's what it was. Now, I only realised... After that, that was kind of a smart answer. I was leaving a few things open now, saying that, I know wasn't that. It? Yeah, yeah, but it, like, just like that. Yeah, I know, Because I was yeah. so shocked. Sure, yeah. And, uh, but I thought it was, um, in my convoluted way, I thought it, might, it was a compliment to him. Yes. 
but it wasn't. <laughs> you know, Kathleen was then in the. Uh, I, I thought afterwards. Oh, God, Kathleen amazing. must have been so I'd say annoyed. she was very upset, yeah. She must in have been. In fairness to her, yeah. she, she was she's always, a wonderful woman. Yeah. And yeah. in fairness to her, she never brought it up. She'd never have, no. No. But it was a moment, wasn't it? It was a terrible moment. It was a moment. kind of the a audience, television the, moment, wasn't the, it? The audience went, you could t- I could hear the audience going, <gasps> yeah. like that, you know. Yeah. But what, I don't know, why didn't yeah. you sleep with Gay Byrne? Like, what was I supposed to say? What were you supposed to say? Oh, I, probably something that he thought, I, I'll introduce a different element of style to the programme, hard-hitting American-style TV, yeah. which it might well have been. And he probably was... It was probably just a miscalculated... But he was... I mean... And, and he's such Andy's a lovely so, guy, and Andy. he's such an intellectual. Oh, he's such a lovely guy. But he's a lovely man, you know. He it is, was, he's it was a, mis- a bad moment for yeah, him, for you know, us, really. Yeah, but it was bad for me as well. I do remember when you wrote your first novel, A Place of Stones, and I remember you telling me the plot <laughs> one night at a and bar. And it took hours. And you told me the whole story. And uh, I remember at the time thinking, that really is terrific. I told you that. And, uh, you did, and, yeah. In know, fact, I might tell you that your reaction to the plot is what made me write it, actually. Really? Yeah, because um, that was an extraordinary instance of luck for me in getting that. I was a journalist, doing quite well as a journalist for the Sunday Tribune, late lamented Sunday Tribune. And the publisher of that novel uh, rang me up one day out of the blue and said, could we meet? And she had seen something in my journalism that let her know that I had a narrative style. And even the, the, I was doing very big interviews at that stage. Yeah, I'd like to come to them. They were, yeah. they were fantastically brilliant profiles oh, well. of people you did I, I, on the I front love, of the Sunday yeah, Tribune. Yeah, she divined that there was an arc, a story arc from beginning to end. Even though it was an interview, there was a story. I, I went into detail about stories and I was picking out the story bits and writing them. And so she offered me, she rang me up and she said, um, would you be interested in writing a bestseller? And I said, no, no. And uh, it went through the hoops. She persisted for six months and I was terrified because I was doing well in journalism. I loved it. I loved the the job and meeting incredible people, really incredible people. And uh, I was afraid to put my head above the parapet to move to fiction. when I'd, I'd never written anything until I did journalism and then it was only journalism. So I hadn't ever even written a short story or a poem or anything. I put her off for six months. And, uh, well, she rang up all the time. And then I eventually made a deal with her. Actually, I think, having met you and telling her you this plot that I had in my head, that if I did a plot for her and she thought it was viable, well, then I'd have a go. But she wouldn't tell anybody. She wasn't to tell anybody mm. that I was writing. So that's, that's how it happened, really. And the fact that you were... I think what you said was, that's a terrific story. Yeah. I uh, thought so at the time, yeah. Yeah. But I, like, like all beginning novelists, I threw everything but the kitchen sink into that novel. <laughs> yeah. Like, every thought I'd ever had, every experience I'd ever had. Like, I was giving backstories to people. And one of the things I learned as I went along is that you don't give backstories to minor characters. You just don't. Because yeah. I would have, there was one little scene, it was only, a, I think, half a page. It was a postman delivering a crucial letter. 
But I gave this guy, like his <laughs> wife had cancer, his, um, his, his Honda motorbike had a puncture, you know, he was, uh, and I gave him a name even. And one of the things I also learned along the way is that when you name a character, it's like a little cloud over the reader. The reader expects the named character to turn up again. Mm-hmm. So you can't have one of these postmen delivering mm-hmm. a letter with, with a name. And I can understand that. Well, yes. I didn't understand it. Because when you're reading, you, 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 you come across a name and you do try to remember the name because you're all, you are expecting the person, yeah, that, that character, to something to do to with reappear. the plot. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah that it's he important. Has a name. So that was a place of stones. You, yes. So it became a very big seller for was, you. Yeah. To your pleasure and surprise, Absolutely. I have no doubt, was it? Yeah. No doubt your publisher then said, we will pay you X amount for writing that story. That's not what happens. No. This is a a common misconception. An advance is not a payment. An advance is a loan against the royalties. You're given, so you're given, say, would 10 grand be fair enough to say? Uh, Well, it was for me, Uh, although I can't even remember. Okay, but let's say 10 grand. You're given 10 grand, that's. Usually for a two book contract, because if you don't earn that much for the publisher, Mm. theoretically you owe them the balance and I have to say that on my books (laughs) I shouldn't be telling you this but on my books um, there was one year recently about three years ago where everybody says to you but you have a backlist sure that's your pension look at all those books that you've written and it's a backlist they're all still selling my total backlist pay about three years ago for a full year was 200 euros (sighs) so it depends mm. on who you are and what promotion you get. Marketing is now, I would say, 85% mm. of a novel, particularly a novel. What about the second book? I mean, that's a bit unnerving. I mean, all very well, right, you've got a great plot and you're, you've thrown the kitchen sink into the first one. But now and everybody forgives you for the mistakes on a first novel. Sure, but now, you've, now the publisher is saying, by the way, can you have the second one by the end of the, the exactly. year? Exactly, yeah. And then you say, oh, God, I better start thinking up another plot, right? That's where you go. Well, that's not my problem. My problem is not plots. <laughs> my problem is actually getting rid of plots in my mind. My problem is trying to winnow out what won't work. So you, you can invariably come up with a story. Oh, no problem with that. You've no problem with, having no. It, with getting stories? No. They come out of your imagination, or would they come out of a newspaper article, or they, they might, like Maeve Binchy with conversations? No, it's usually an image. I'll give you an example. Uh, I was driving up by Church Street. Church Street is when you cross a bridge, cross the Liffey, and you're going north side, and you're going past the Law Library. It was tea time, and the traffic was very heavy, but it was behaving very oddly. It was kind of stop, start, and moving, and... And I was getting very irritated. And then I saw, ahead of about three cars in front of me, there was an elderly woman, all dressed in black, very tall, white hair. And she had a shopping trolley. And I got really annoyed with these cars that they wouldn't let her cross the road. She was in the middle of the road with a shopping trolley. I was glaring at people and saying, like, let the lady, you know, kind of... And when I got up to her, I discovered she was using the trolley like a matador pushing it at the cars, trying to get rid of the cars, you know? She She was, yeah. 
So that image stayed in my mind for nearly three years. And I was speaking to Jennifer Johnston once and she gave me a very, very good piece of advice. She said, when something, when you have an image in your head and it's at the back of your head and it's scraping your brain like sandpaper, that's a novel. You start saying to yourself, who's that woman? Why is she acting like that? Who does she live with? How do they put up with it? Mm. You know, and you, you create a whole scenario out of that one image. And it won't leave your, your mind. No. And as you think about it, you're eff- all effectively creating a life around her. Well, you do when you start writing. The That's imi- what I mean, the, yeah. the image in itself is, yeah. is strong enough. And, strong and before enough. you start writing, uh, how, much, how much thought have you given to the actual plot no. before you start writing? None. No, it's people. It's people. So would you start that? Would you start the book then with the image? A woman was standing in Church no, Street. I, no, no. What what I do? And I don't know. Everybody writes differently. Sure, you know. So there was another thing that happened to me up in Anna McCarrick, where late at night we were all having a drink and everybody was. This is an artist retreat yes, where people go to write to their write books, to, paint in, to, in, yeah, in peace, in peace, and permission to write with nobody hanging out. Either. Yeah. So I was left with. I think he was a songwriter and just the two of us were just finishing our drinks everybody else was gone and he started telling me about his relations and I was glazing over you know I was tired and I wanted to go to bed and, you know. but suddenly he said something that just got me he was telling me about two uncles of his and one of them went to the States and the other stayed in the stony soil of Midlands Ireland and the one in the States made a lot of money. The one at home was practically destitute, right? So the one in the States died and he left all his money to the church. This guy got nothing. So he came home, there was a big funeral. He was buried at the graveyard. And the, this other uncle waited for four years and then went up to the graveyard at four o'clock in the morning and chiselled his name off the tombstone. And now, there's, mm. there's three novels in that. Mm. The hatred, the passion. The rage, the, the disappointment. The rage, all of that. Yeah. yeah. So I, I made a novel out of that. Yeah. But that scene yeah. was the last scene in the novel. Have you been disappointed in the outcome of some of your books? I mean, in your own assessment of the books. How many have you written? I mean, about 10 novels? No, no. I've, written, I've written about 23 books altogether. 23, yeah. Novels? 16 novels. 16 novels. Yeah. Have you been disappointed at the end with some of them? I don't read them all. Do you not? Don't do you, read them do you, at all. Don't read them at all, do you no. not? No. When you finish them and you hand them into the That's publishers, it, do you, but do you worry about the critics? Not anymore, because I don't get reviewed. Do you not? No, no. Do you not? No, very rarely, no. Um, Why? Well, a lot of reasons. First of all, I'm not in the kind of the golden literary circle where people wait for books to come out. Now, my I have a very nice cohort of readers. I really do. They're very yeah. nice. I, you know, they come up to me and they, when's your next book and all that stuff. There is a cadre here where the reviewers, I don't want, I'm, I'm not being petty about this. I actually, it's not of interest to me, but there's a kind of a cachet amongst the reviewers 
you know, and there is a golden circle of very, very good writers, I say. A lot of very good writers. Very good writers. So there's no, there's nothing petty in my my mind or my Mm. heart about them. They're lovely, actually, and they're always very nice to me when I make them. Yeah. Rarely, because I don't get invited to the festivals or anything like that. But... um, it's a, it's a new, a new golden circle. Well, it's definitely a golden yeah. circle. Any of okay. us in the other group yeah. would, would know that. Uh, mm. Now, it doesn't bother me in the slightest. No. My job is to write a book. I write the book. Nobody writes uh, deliberately writes a bad book. Oh, no. Have you made money out of it? I did. I don't anymore. Now, when you write, have you got contracts for two or three books? When you The one I've just published in November was the first of a two-book contract. Of a two-book contract. Yeah. And I've, I've always, I always get them in two books, yeah. tranches. Have you unrealised ambitions at this stage of your life? Yeah. In terms of, of ageing, as we all are, have you found positives in ageing? In, in uh, I have. The positives are that you actually begin not to worry too much about what people think of you. I remember I interviewed Tom Murphy once, one of the really seminal interviews I did for the Tribune, and it was for his 50th birthday. And I asked him, well, what does it feel like to be 50 now? You know, this was from, I suppose I was 30 or something. Tom was a very profound person, and he never gave you an answer without thinking about it. So he thought about it, and he thought about it. And then he said, when you get to 50... You can't rely on other people's opinions. You have to have your own. And I thought that was absolutely superb. And I tried to live up to that. He he said one other thing to me in that interview. He said, I sit down at my desk at 10 o'clock in the morning to write. And the next time I look at the clock, it's 7 o'clock in the evening and I don't know where the time went. And that is one of the joys of writing. That when that happens, and it does happen to a lot of writers, that you just, you actually go into a different dimension. You don't know it because you are in the world that you're creating or have created. Dear Purcell, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure having a chat with you. Thank you. That's all from us for this week. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast and that you'll join us again. <laughs>